This is a Sono India production and you're listening to Pride and Prejudice. This episode was previously published in our show Science and Us as the second in a two-part series on gender in science. Hello, Surya Hello. For those of you who don't know, Surya hosts a fantastic show on all things queer in India called Pride and Prejudice. She has joined us today. What is the show about today? Yes, so this is the second in the two-part series on gender and science, Surya. And today's episode is about queering science. Oh, this should be interesting. There is a long history of science being used by oppressors to justify racism, sexism, even classism. But scientists with dominant identities today will still talk about how science is completely objective. The first episode was on how science is gendered and we spoke about contraception trials and how women in this country are subject to family planning measures. In this episode, we speak to Sayantan Datta, a queer science journalist and communicator. Oh, I think we're on some shared uh, WhatsApp groups. They do a lot of work around inclusivity in science. Yes, they write on feminist multimedia science collective called Life of Science. They also teach writing and communication at Kriya University in Andhra Pradesh. We had a free-willing chat about how the certainty of the male-female binary inbuilt in science hampers scientific research. Sayantan trained as a biologist and worked in a neuroscience laboratory and decided to pull out in the second year. They found working in the lab stifling. In biology labs, we particularly work with model organisms, right? And I was in a genetics lab. And if you are if you are a geneticist, then there's this big belief that genetics is actually going to be able to explain everything that you're observing. So from human behavior to anything else should be explainable by genetics. And I understand where that... Um, you know, almost spiritual belief in your discipline comes from. This belief is not very different from how people believe in God. So people do say that, so I mean, you know, to to believe in God means to have this almost spiritual belief. And that's what you see in scientists. They also have this almost spiritual belief in the the discipline that they're studying. Um, And we were working with flies. So fruit flies, these are these tiny flies that grow on banana and other fruits when they are a little overripe, um, very, very common model organisms. We were looking at fruit flies and often you would get into these conversations about <coughs> choosing which flies to work with. So am I going to work with the male flies or the female flies? And oftentimes the reasons why you would choose one over the other would simply be because others have done it. Just because 100 papers before you have chosen to work on the male fly, you decide to continue working on the male fly. Now, some of these things don't make sense to me and I was just trying to understand what's happening. And then there's this big question of why is it that we're always sticking to the male and female fly? What happens to an intersex fly? I'm sure there are many intersex flies. And what we are possibly doing is trashing them. So in fruit fly work, if you don't need a fly, you just kill it in alcohol and probably that's what we are doing. So these are some of the things that are fairly common. I mean, and I'm not saying that I have observed all of them in front of my eyes, but I know that these occur and these are the undercurrents in which biology labs often work in the country. 
Wow, now I want to cry about all the intersex flies dying in labs. It sounds trivial probably, but it's interesting how queer lives are seen as more disposable in human society, right? And how this in some way is replicated by suicide people in labs studying flies and possibly other creatures too. I'm sure the male fly is not the most interesting fly to study, right? But it is interesting how men have mostly chosen to study the creature that they have something in common with. And what this means about the science that ultimately reaches lay people like us. Yeah, true. There are so many things that I did not know about. In fact, Sayantin talks about several examples from the plant and animal kingdom, which are madly interesting. So if we assume a male and a female binary, there need to be some distinguishing factors for what is assigned male and what is assigned female, right? Sayantin explains this. People come up with um, several things which are very much grounded in science, right? So one is the genital size. So the fact that the penis is often significantly longer in size than the, uh, the, the, the clitoris and the vagina and the vulva. Then people will say that the gamete size, so the sperm is significantly longer in size than the egg. Gamete motility, the sperm is often much more mobile than the egg, which is portrayed as a more passive and like sort of sitting individual and people will um, also um, so and that the fact that uh, being female is essentially being xx and being male is essentially being xy so then the y chromosome becomes the sex determining chromosome in in some sense so then we say okay, okay then let's take these and let's let's judge let, let's see whether there are examples in the animal world there is reproduction um, which means carrying the pregnancy and uh, giving birth and lactation happens uh, to be the part to be the job role of the female while the male is supposed to just be the impregnator now so so we say okay, okay let's now go and look for examples and see how much of this holds true and even before you step into the plant kingdom very much in the animal kingdom there are stuff that screws, screws this up completely so if you look at hyenas Hyenas, the, the female clitoris is significantly longer than the penis. And in fact, uh, when people were first observing hyenas, they ended up classifying female hyenas as male hyenas because they got it wrong. And that also tells us then the nature of classification. I mean, female and male are just words. What happens if the characteristics listed you know, under each word changes? Then something about lactation there are several bats where it is the males who have fully functional breasts and they go lactate the young ones pregnancy um, carrying the term you know so there are seahorses and several other deep sea animals who are constantly um, who where the male is the one who is carrying the pregnancy and carrying it to term and giving birth to the to the progeny so now what this tells us is that and you know these are just some examples i mean we can always step in find more when it comes to insects even in terms of numbers they supersede human beings by large large numbers so so neither are these uncommon things so what i'm saying is that these are not uh, exceptions as we would like to call them because there are too many of them to think of them as exceptions anymore you know we have just we are constantly finding these things um, now, 
think about plants plants may it is very rare that you have a male plant and a female plant it's really really rare what you have is often a plant which has a male flower and a female flower but more interestingly for more uh, for a lot of plants at least what you see is the male and the female part in the same flower so if you look at hibiscus which is the most common example for these kind of flowers you see that there's this long stalk that comes out and that long stalk is called the stigma which is the uh, the pistil and the stigma which is the quote unquote female part of the flower and then you have these nice yellow dot wala feather like things right and these are the anthers which hold the the male gametes in some sense so for the plant kingdom and several other um, you know animals male and female are not even two different entities so you look at earthworms slugs snails they have both male and female gametes in the same body and that doesn't mean they don't mate because often we think about heterosexuality as something that is evolutionarily important because you want to procreate and take your species further then it becomes interesting so okay if then if then an animal is hermaphrodite which means it has both male and female gametes in the same body then why does it need a partner it should just mate with itself in some sense and give birth to more and more progeny what's the problem and then you see that that's not true for earthworms for snails they actually slugs two of them come together and they exchange gametes and that tells us that you know the way we've been looking at male and female as two binaries are just because as humans we see male and female as such strict boundaries and that's also often socially constructed we are told that male means this and female means this and anything that is even slightly deviating from what you've been told is an exception that's how queerness is made abnormal that's how being trans is made abnormal so these are all constructions so even a careful observation of nature can really help us in in understanding what are the categories that we create and whether those categories are flawed wow this can be a whole netflix series i wonder why most of this info doesn't reach us right yeah i think we know why It's amazing how the idea of objectivity is used as a shield by scientists to give validity to their own beliefs. Yeah, that's what Santan says that there is this belief in your discipline which is close to spiritual and that makes it very frightening. So, I think most of modern science works on two main principles, right? One is objectivity, which is the fact that who we are doesn't influence how we look at the world. which essentially means that one a scientific finding should be one that remains the same irrespective of whether you do it i do it somebody else do it does it somebody uses a different method to do it the finding the fact remains the same and that is how a fact uh, that is how a statement becomes a fact it becomes a fact when it has been objectively tested to be true the other thing about uh, modern science often is reductionism which is that you study individual parts alone and then you hope that the knowledge that you get from the study of these individual parts is going to tell you more about the entire system so objectivity and reductionism 
And the other thing that really guides the spiritual faith that I was talking about, almost spiritual faith in science, is the idea of essentialism, particularly, um, you know, in, in our conversation, it might be more relevant to think about biological essentialism, which means that all qualities that make us human, every aspect of our of our of our nature of the way we are, who we are, can be mapped to a biological substrate. And at this moment, you know, one has to realize that this is a belief. We don't. We very well cannot conclude whether every aspect of who we are can be mapped onto biology. But biologists like to be essentialistic. They like to believe that biology is a sufficient tool to ex- to explain who we are. This reminds me of when I told my high school boyfriend I never want to give birth and he said my biological clock will start ticking. He is now a biologist but my clock is still quiet somehow. Yes. So our bodies are meant only to reproduce, right? I mean, coming back to what Santhan was talking about, essentialism. You are what your body is, basically. And the kind of questions that are asked then is that, is there a gay gene? Or is there a structure in the brain that can be identified as gay? In 1993, American geneticist Dean Hammer suggested that a gene on X chromosome predisposes a male to homosexuality. This is Hammer in an interview in 2013. So there are probably many different genes that affect sexual orientation. We don't know what they are yet. We don't know exactly how they work, but there is very convincing evidence that they do exist. In addition to the genetic research, there have been a large number of studies of other traits that seem to be correlated with sexual orientation. This includes certain autistic clicks in the ear, the length of different digits, handedness, and so on and so forth. And all of these are probably markers of underlying sexual development events that are important for sexual orientation. So they may not necessarily cause a person to be gay or straight, but they're related through the same biological pathways. I think the critical point is that none of these are choice, none of them are even learned. These are biological markers for something very deep that goes on inside people. Sayantan asks instead, why are we looking for a gay gene at all? One must realize that one must ask that that how is it that science is constructing this immoral and unnatural image of queer people, transgender people all the time through the lens of the pandemic and through several other lenses by studying the anatomy of the brains of queer people, by studying the genetics of homosexuality, by, by studying the behavior of homosexual men. Why, why are these being questions that are asked by sciences and, and why are these questions not appearing differently? Why is it why is the question not a sexual is sexual orientation genetic? Why is nobody probing the reasons behind heterosexuality? Why is it that homosexuality and being transgender is something that's being constantly probed, but nobody is probing why is it that heterosexuality also exists? Yeah, I mean I have always been curious about heterosexuality. Yeah, but so many studies on homosexuality, right? And in one experiment, they even examined the brains of dead HIV-positive homosexual men with heterosexual men and women. But how do they know if someone is heterosexual for sure? Who knows? I mean, anyway, Sayadhan, explain this experiment. Um, There are several studies that... uh, So the question of queerness has been very intriguing for science. I'm not sure why. Uh, but it seems to have been very, very interesting, right? I mean, um, 
so there are several ways in which queerness has been investigated one is the anatomical way of doing it which is you take brains of dead people so homosexual men who died with died of aids um you slice those brains and you start comparing different sizes of different parts of those brains with heterosexual men who died of aids and then what you are essentially going to say is okay if i see that this part is happening to be small in all um, my subjects then this is the part where homosexuality resides this is the part that's responsible for making people homosexual then you have the entire genetic trajectory of of doing such research where you're constantly trying to find a gay gene a gay gene or several gay genes but some other version of the story is constantly being affected attempted there is another study done just a little more than a decade ago and it said that the brain scans of straight people and gay people proved that gay men are a little more like women you want to read this line from the article published in new scientist yeah sure brain scans have provided the most compelling evidence yet that being gay or straight is a biologically fixed trait the scans reveal that in gay people key structures of the brain governing emotion mood anxiety and aggressiveness resemble those in straight people of the opposite sex this is like testing a stereotype and finding that it's true yeah and this line of investigation is linked to eugenics this idea that there are certain traits in humans which are desirable and then as hitler believed can we control the race and ensure that these desirable human beings are only born science then talks about it the genetic trajectory is particularly very interesting because of how because of the risks that it contains right i mean the moment you can pinpoint homosexuality to a certain gene or a certain group of genes then the next step is to to correct it genetic engineering has tools to correct it so this kind of research runs a very very you know it runs a huge risk of correction and i can just quote a little bit from from my book chapter particularly because um i had written about this a little bit so there was there was somebody called Daryl Yates Rist who was the co-founder of the gay and lesbian alliance against defamation in the uni- united states and he had said that intellectually what do we gain by finding out there's a homosexual gene nothing except an attempt to identify those people who have it and then open them up to all sorts of experimentation to change them now where is this concern coming from and this concern is coming is is not unfounded at all so once again for example there was a former chief rabbi called lord jacobovitz who had said that homosexuality is a disability and if people wish to have it eliminated before they have children because they wish to have grandchildren or for other reasons i do not see any moral objection for using genetic engineering to limit this particular trend it would be like correcting many other conditions such as infertility or multiple sclerosis so you see that the risk is really close so by bringing all of these experiences into saying that i have found five genes which are responsible for queerness is actually reducing me and my queerness into these five genes which we don't know which we don't understand these five genes may be doing a hundred different things 
everything that we do through genetics is a snapshot of a moment but we know that our genes are of you know hundreds and thousands of genes are being switched on and switched off in the body as we speak and hundreds and thousands of genes are influenced by the food that we eat the environment that we are in the air that we breathe so genetics is a lot more complicated than the simple relationships that gene x relates to gene to to function y so we see that there's some kind of intellectual dishonesty in attempting to ask these questions also because these are not facts that are new these are facts that geneticists themselves realize better than i do but it's like i said it's some kind of spiritual belief that science should be able to solve the question all the research on sexual orientation has not tried to find a heterosexuality gene but a homosexuality gene that tells us because you know nobody's going and finding genes for normal development everybody is trying to find genes for abnormal development so what are the problems that make people have certain congenital developmental disorders so you're constantly const- talking in this language of disorder and abnormality and death and disease and therefore saying that it's best if we don't have gay people around yeah so that's one of my very early ruptures with the science that i was doing as a, as a molecular geneticist it was also very difficult for me to put these strands together to to realize that the discipline that i'm working in has contributed and continues to contribute massively to to elimination of me and my own people so how is it that i sort of bring these two together and and i couldn't for me it was rather difficult this gaze on queer people becomes somewhat vulgar i would say when it comes to looking at queerness just as behavior queerness gets reduced to sexual acts and this is obvious in the hiv aids research you also see what does being queer get reduced to in these scientific definitions being queer gets reduced to certain sex acts certain kinds of sex acts so and the language has changed similarly right so first it was homosexuality that was blamed and then it was homosexual sex acts that were blamed um and homosexual by homosexual sex acts and i'm putting this in big quotes is certain non pino vaginal sex acts that that were constantly blamed for the massive spread of hiv aids and these sex acts were also deemed immoral and unnatural right so there's this entire construction of what is natural and what is unnatural that is happening by attributing a pandemic to certain sex acts death and disease to certain sex acts and this reminds me of the kind of papers that were coming out during the hiv pandemic the so the government or national aids control organization for the sake of controlling hiv had reconciled to the fact that they have to work with categories they call men having sex with men or msm or transgender people and here they mean only trans women right but the kind of papers that came out gave such explicit description of the sexual act i wonder if that was necessary because because they were not describing heterosexual acts so explicitly like when we speak of sex workers or you know heterosexual men 
I do not want to read out these descriptions, but we will add the study as a reference. It's sad how terms like Kothi that we use in the queer community to relate to each other, terms with which our ancestors have created a culture for us, right? Created a world where we can fit in. How these terms and how loving relationships in the community are reduced in such a crude way, in a way that feels so dehumanizing. Also that cishet society can learn how to control queer bodies. But these studies mention the fluidity of queerness and how that makes strict categorization useless. I asked Sayantan what kind of studies should be done and what is the wish list here? And what are the questions that are not asked? And of course, they had a lot to say. You know, what are we not asking is queer and trans affirmative stuff. We are constantly talking about things that make our lives difficult because we are queer and trans. But nobody is asking what are the stuff that makes us feel happy as being queer and trans individuals. Nobody is asking how can we do something that actually makes this queer or trans individual feel better about themselves, feel more affirmed. Why is it that the state of transaffirmation surgeries and transaffirmation procedures, be it the hormone therapy or any other affirmation procedure, why is it that very, very few people are able to do it properly? And why is it that it's so expensive? Why is it like because there are so many other things that are not that expensive and you interestingly see you know think about the contraception debate right the um, what was used as these injectable contraceptives right which is progesterone or progestin these these forms of the hormone and was being forced on so many women without proper clinical trials indiscriminately is often the same thing that also exists in these um, hormone pills that transgender women need. On one hand, the government is happy to impose the same molecule on a population. And on the other hand, the government is denying the same molecule to a population that really wants it. Why? Why, why is that happening? It's, it's actually, in my mind, I at least can't put these together and there's really no other conclusion from this except that there's a huge amount of bias that works in science and science practice. Um, but like I was saying, I think science really needs to think about joy and affirmation. And how is it that science can be used as a tool not for correcting queer and trans individuals, but for affirming who they are as people, for making the process of medical transition easier for people who want to avail medical transition. After Sayatan told me this, I looked up for studies related to affirmation procedures. And what was amazing is that there are so many studies examining the quality of life after surgery. One study was titled Regret After Gender Affirmation Surgery, A Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis of Prevalence. You want to read its conclusion? Yes. Based on this review, there is an extremely low prevalence of regret in transgender patients after gender affirmation surgery. I mean, what a surprise. But sadly, trans people are told so often that they will regret surgery that it might be a good thing that this study exists. I don't know, yeah. It seemed like they did this study only to find out if trans people will regret the surgeries. 
But Surya, what is it that you want more research on or big science to spend more money on? I was thinking about mental health and suicide prevention. Why is it that we do not have programs for queer people? I mean, there's literally an annual Transgender Day of Remembrance where we commemorate all the trans people who pass away each year, either by murder or suicide. It is an epidemic that science should look into. I'm sure our listeners have strong opinions on this. Please write to us on our social media handles and let us know. Yes, please do. All right. That's all I have to say in this episode. Goodbye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pride and Prejudice. If you like this episode, please rate this podcast or leave a comment. Underreported and underrepresented stories can become mainstream only if it reaches more people. So please support us by visiting our contributing page on our website sunoindia.in or follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram.